Hello, folks. This is Princess. You are listening to the Millennial Mustard Seed Podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share with your friends. It's tough. We're in a very tough spot. I think that what we're doing right now is of great benefit and virtue because it's an end around between this whole corrupt informational system, media system. We claim to believe in a God who spoke the universe into existence and literally raised himself from the dead. And yet we're not going to believe that anything else exists in the spirit realm, even though his word tells us that they do. Their bodies weren't permitted to go to sleep like humans do. And they weren't permitted to go to heaven. So they wander the earth. You know, I've seen the eyes turn black to unknown tongues being spoken. These giants would live way up in the highland. The young graves, the young men would hide up in the trees and wait for one of these 12 footers to come walking down the path and they would jump on them and kill them and drag them back to the village and the village would feast on the body. Then people start to get weapons, they start to get armor, they start to build cities, they start to fortify their cities. Now, God looks down and there's violence everywhere. The battle, this war that we are at, is not against each other. It's against these principalities and these rulers and these archons in the high places. It's really worthwhile to read the Bible yourself. Fear is one of the primary drivers of mind control because we have to take every thought captive and resist fear. You're going to have a testimony that is a justice case against the kingdom of darkness. This is Ballhead Brandon. Thank you for tuning into the Millennial Mustard Seed, my favorite podcast. Welcome back to the Millennial Mustard Seed podcast. I am excited for this episode. Returning is friend Dr. Laura Sanger. And this is a much needed conversation, you guys. It seems to be like uh, we're doing this annual birthday interview. And it's just an honor to call her friend. We talk about how important it is to walk in the fear of the Lord in order to be giant slayers. And also to war, to go to war from a place of rest, resting in God. We dive deep into the scriptures, pulling out just gems in the word of God to help us understand what the difference is between Fearing man versus fearing the Lord. And why does God command us to rest? And how can we go to war from a place of rest? Honestly, what's the difference between Saul's kingdom versus David's kingdom in the Old Testament? And really, what does it mean to fear the Lord? What does that look like? Dr. Laura shares some personal experiences at the end, as well as I do, just about growing and learning these things over time and just how important it is to stay close to the word of God in the days that we live in. I know you guys are going to love this episode. Let me do some real quick maintenance before we get right into it. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you guys listen on. Please leave me that five-star rating and review. That helps the show grow. 
Next up, in case you guys didn't know, I am a big fan of Canary Cry Radio, Canary Cry News Talk with Basil and Gons. I'm asking all of you guys, friends, family, listeners, that you guys would keep Basil in prayer. He had a surgery, and we're really hoping that God will bring a full healing and restoration to him so he can get back on air over there with Sir Gons, and they can keep producing much-needed content. Oh, I don't want to forget this. Dr. Lara sent me 22 promises. There's 22 different promises that you can find in the show notes, you guys. Go take a screenshot of them. Go write them down, whatever it takes. It is important because these are promises that God gives us for being obedient, for following after him. And that is the kind of encouragement we need in these days that we live in. Next up, this coming Thursday, May 25th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I will be joining NCRN Radio Network, the rundown of our reality, and Fireback Radio. We got some great feedback. There was a lot of information covered last time, but we did not cover everything. So I will be joining up with the crew again for a part two to the symposium. You can find some information on the show notes. Well, that's all the maintenance things, at least I think it is. I know I'm forgetting something, but whatever. I am ready for this episode. Are you guys ready? Let's go! Welcome back to the show, everybody. I have a special guest returning. I believe, Dr. Laura, this is your third or fourth appearance overall on the podcast. So it's a pleasure to have you here with me on this birthday interview. Well, I'm always thrilled to join you, especially on your birthday. I consider it a privilege. So thanks for having me. It's it's awesome how God has just been working things together for the good of those who are called according to his will and purpose. And we were just talking before this recording a little bit and before prayer. And the topic that we're going to be discussing today is is timely and it's important. I believe it's totally God-inspired. And this is going to be one for the records because what God is doing today is a little bit different than what he's been doing in previous seasons. So we're going to be discussing walking in obedience to the Lord, walking in the fear of the Lord and how that can lead to slaying giants. (laughs) Why don't you kind of warm us up and start us off with uh, everything that God has put on your heart for this amazing episode? Well, yes, just as you say, we're going to talk about the fear of the Lord and, you know, where that leads us and how it gives us courage to slay giants. And, you know, as we were talking before we got on, um, just I'm so excited about speaking about the fear of the Lord. It's one of my most favorite topics um, because it has made such an impact in my own life once I learned how to walk in the fear of the Lord and not the fear of man. And so I'm so excited to be able to share uh, just the things that Lord has placed on my heart to speak on this topic. So I thought a good place to start is really just 
trying to understand what does it mean um, to walk in the fear of the Lord. And, you know, looking at the Hebrew word for fear is a great place to start. And so that's the, the Hebrew word is yare. Now it has this wide range of meanings in scripture. So, you know, it can refer to that feeling we have of anticipation of danger or pain, but it can also mean awe or reverence. Like when we're in wonder or astonishment or amazement. And when I think about the fear of the Lord, you know, it's, it's this gratitude and admiration for the mysterious ways of the Lord. And it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, but I have. And when you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and you gaze at the wonder of it, that's yeah. what the fear of the Lord is like. It's it's having that overwhelming sense of God's glory and his magnificence. And so much so that, you know, you just want to erupt in worship. And so that's what we're going to dive into today. Yes. And, you know, to, to think more about um, this Hebrew word, yare. So the Jewish classical sages, they actually defined this word for fear in three different ways. So you can kind of think of them like three different levels of fear. The lowest level of fear is really the common understanding of what fear is. And that is fear of unpleasant consequences or punishment. And that's, you know, when we anticipate pain of some kind and that triggers, you know, the fight or flight response. Well, this level of fear can also be associated with the fear of man. So being afraid of or worried about what other people might think of you. Then the next layer uh, level of fear is when we have fear or anxiety over breaking God's law. And so that fear, it motivates us to do good deeds because we don't want to be punished. But the highest level of fear is a profound reverence for life that comes from rightly seen. And I love that definition because what some of these sages were doing is they were pairing the word fear with seen. And that's because when we operate in this level of fear, we actually discern the presence of God in all things. You know, we can see his workmanship in everything around us. And that's what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. Now, in the English language, we really only have two primary definitions for fear. The first one being, you know, that feeling of anxiety and agitation when we're in the presence of danger, evil, or pain. And that triggers, you know, this these feelings of timidity, of dread, terror, fright, apprehension. And that can be associated, again, with the fear of man. The other definition is this respectful dread or awe or reverence. And again, that's associated with the fear of the Lord. So those are just some of your basic definitions of fear and what does it mean um, to fear the Lord. Now, I thought it would be helpful if we actually look at two different kingdoms. So we look at Saul's kingdom and we look at David's kingdom to contrast the fear of the Lord. Cause it's interesting, you know, as I've um, shared on the fear of the Lord with um, different audiences, I find that there's a lot of Christians who just don't understand what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. And it's, you know, confusing. Like, why would we want to fear a loving father? Is he really mean like people, some people say he is. And that's not at all what the fear of the Lord is. So um, that's why I thought it's it's helpful first to kind of start with some definitions. Absolutely. And, and that's so important. And just a real quick, wh what my mind was doing is a lot of the times people will 
relate their earthly relationship with their father or dad here with what God is like in heaven. So when there's trauma in childhood or just bad relationship, a lot of times people feel like God's going to squash them like a bug when they hear about him because they may reflect and say, yeah, I've done all these things wrong. And they have a really bad approach to who God really is. So the clarity on what fear is in the Lord is so important. Now, what can you tell us about the difference between Saul's kingdom versus David's kingdom? Well, so Saul's kingdom represents the fear of man. And what's interesting, you know, before Saul was appointed king, Israel was a theocracy. So they were governed by judges. But the elders of Israel got to this point where they were no longer satisfied with a theocracy and they wanted a king. And we read about this in 1 Samuel 8, verse 5. It says, they said to him, being Samuel, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. So it's interesting here that the elders of Israel, you know, they're trying to justify their desire for a king by blaming, you know, the wickedness of Samuel's sons, as far as the reason why they need to move away from being governed by judges. But really the, their heart motivation is exposed in verse 20, where it says, then we will then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So here we see, you know, they no longer trusted the Lord to protect mm -hmm. them and to give them victory over their enemies. So they were walking under this fear of man because they wanted to be like all the other nations. You know, how often do we do that? We want to be just like everyone else. Well, so the Israelites, you know, they rejected God as their king because fear of man gripped their hearts. And this set up, uh, you know, Saul being appointed as Israel's first king. Now, what's interesting is that Saul comes from a very um, questionable bloodline, I'll say. Yeah. And let yeah. me read um, verse Samuel 9, verses 1 through 2. And it says, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerar, the son of Bekarath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So there's two things to note from this passage. First of all, Saul's father, Kish, was considered a mighty man, which is Gabor in Hebrew. And I'll come back to that in a moment. The second thing is that Saul was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. So this Hebrew word Gabor, it means mighty, strong, valiant, giant, tyrant, chief, impetuous soldier or hunter. And it comes from a Hebrew root word, Gabar, which means you know, to be strong, to prevail, to show oneself mighty, even to act proudly towards God. And the first mention of Gabor, um, you know, as your listeners probably know, is in Genesis 6-4. Now, I go into much greater detail in my book. I have a whole chapter on the Gabor. But um, essentially, you know, the first mention, like I said, is in Genesis 6-4 and referencing the Nephilim. Now, what's important to keep in mind, though, is not every time in scripture that the word Gabor is used is it referencing the hybrid race of giants. So we have to look at the context of scripture to discern whether or not it is. And I think you'll see as I lay out um, 
you know, Saul's life and, and dive deeper into these things, we'll see that within Saul's DNA was this genetic mutation for the hybrids. Now, why on earth would God choose as Israel's first king, a man with Nephilim genes? And when we think about it, you know, God is almighty. He's all powerful. He's all knowing, but he's not all controlling. And, you know, in his abounding love for us at the point of creation, he gave us free will. And that's because the father, you know, he wasn't interested in a race of automatons. He wanted a race of beings that were free to choose whether or not we love him and whether we want to follow in his ways. Now, we know free will is risky because, you know, it can mean that there's disappointment, there's pain, there's rebellion, there's abandonment. But for the father, you know, it was a risk worth taking. And then as we see in Saul's life, you know, we see that he was inclined towards disobedience and pride and even showing favor to his fellow Gabor. Now, there's two instances in Saul's life where we can clearly see that he walked in the fear of man. And the first time is when he faced the Philistines for the very, his very first battle. And I'll read this. This is from 1 Samuel 13, verses 5 through 14. It says the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Haven. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Now I'll come back to that in a moment because that's significant. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I will have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command your Lord, the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So in this passage, you know, we see that Saul, he was afraid to lose his army because they were beginning to scatter while waiting for Samuel. So Saul took matters into his own hands. He was more concerned what people thought of his leadership than in obeying the Lord. And this is an example of how he walked in the fear of man. But his troops also did. You know, it says that you know, his troops were quaking in fear. And then some of them even retreated to the east, back crossing back over the Jordan. And I want to take a moment actually to consider the significance of this because, you know, what is it, what does crossing the Jordan represent? And in order mm-hmm. to understand that, if we go back to the first time it's mentioned in scripture, 
it gives us some understanding. It's in Genesis 13, verses 10 through 11. It says, Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. Okay, so here you have Lot goes to the east of the Jordan. Abraham goes to the west of the Jordan. Now, east of the Jordan is later where the half-tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, and then also Gad, would settle in that land. Well, Abraham, he's he goes to the place near Bethel where earlier in his life he had heard from the Lord. And when he was there, this is what the Lord said. This is Genesis 13, verses 14 through 17. It says, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So essentially, this was the promised land that Abraham was, um, he was given this promise. And then later, of course, you know, when Joshua was leading the Israelites into the promised land, in order to obtain their inheritance, they had to cross the Jordan. So crossing the Jordan represents possessing our inheritance. Now, what's interesting is, you know, you think about Lot and he represents the flesh and walking in the fear of man. Abraham represents the spirit and walking in the fear of the Lord. Well, so when Saul's men were filled and gripped with fear of man, it caused them to retreat from the land of promise, which was given to Abraham and his descendants. And it caused them to cross back over the Jordan into the land of the East where Lot was given. And that's where kind of that fear of man was established in that land. And so what we can gather from this is when we operate in the fear of man, we actually step outside of that place of promise and we can lose the inheritance that God has given us. Now, another example of Saul walking in the fear of man is when we examine how he treated the Gabor. And this gets really interesting. So 1 Samuel 14, 52 says, Now there was a fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, which is the word Gabor, he took him for himself. So instead of Saul killing the Gabor in battle, he actually took them in. He collected them, so to speak. And when you look at the Hebrew word for that phrase, he took him for himself, it's the primitive root word, akaf, and it means to gather, receive, collect, and assemble. And so we see here that Saul's behavior towards the Gabor actually demonstrates this fascination that he had with them. He actually had an affinity for them, and this led to his downfall. So God commanded Saul to haram or completely destroy the Amalekites. And this is um, in 1 Samuel 15, verses 2 through 3, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, (laughs) I don't know about you, but I 
have always struggled with passages like this. You know, I have a gift of mercy. And so I feel people's pain and I'm always drawn to those who are in despair or distraught. Well, I hate the fact that the children and infants had to die in this circumstance. And I'm like, what in the world did they do? Why did they have to die? And it wasn't until I understood this principle of Haram that it made sense to me. So when God, um, well, first of all, the Hebrew word Haram, it means to completely destroy, exterminate, and to devote for destruction. And so it's a term that denotes Yahweh's absolute disdain for particular acts of sin, especially the mixing of species. So when the hybrid race is being spread. So when God commanded Haram, he was calling for punishment by total annihilation because they were spreading the hybrid race. Now, who are the Amalekites? The Amalekites were these vicious plunderers, and they were actually Israel's first enemy when they left Egypt. So what happened, if you remember, you know, the Egyptians handed their wealth to the Israelites. Well, that plunder caught the eye of the Amalekites, and they wanted it for themselves. So they developed this strategy of attacking the back of the caravan. So those who straggle towards the back, that would be, you know, the frail, the weak, the sick, the elderly, nursing mothers, children. They were easier prey for the Amalekites. And so they would attack and kill them. Well, when you look at the, the bloodline for the Amalekites, and again, I go into this in my book, but it's really interesting how these pieces connect. So Amalek was the grandson of Esau. And Esau's son, um, he had a son named Iliaphaz, and Iliaphaz had a Horite concubine named Timna. So Timna bore Iliaphaz's son, and they named him Amalek. Now, the name itself, Amalek, means bloodthirsty, as in someone who devours something and licks up the blood. So what we have here is Amalek, you know, with his mother being Horite. And the Horites are mentioned in Genesis 14 among a list of tribes of giants, but it's not thought that they themselves were a tribe of giants, but more that they intermingled with the giants. So they, you know, they were spreading the hybrid race. So it's likely that Amalek had the Nephilim genes within him. Now, one thing we do know for sure is that Amalek inherited the extreme hatred that Esau had toward Jacob. So, you know, the strife between Esau's descendants and Jacob's descendants intensified throughout the generations, causing the Amalekites to be one of Israel's worst enemies. Now, given all that, it's reasonable to conclude the reason why the Amalekites were so detestable to the Lord is because not only were they merciless in their attack of this burgeoning nation of Israel coming out of Egypt, but they practiced interbreeding. They were spreading the hybrid race. And that's why God commanded Saul to haram the Amalekites, but he failed to do that. So during Saul's day, Agag was king of the Amalekites. And because Saul walked in the fear of man, you know, he gave in to the whims of his fancy and he preserved King Agag's life. And what's interesting is Josephus, you know, one of the, the famous Jewish historians, He writes this about why Saul did that. He says, Saul also took Agag, the enemy's king, captive, the beauty and tallness of whose body he admired so much that he thought him worthy of preservation. 
giving way to human passions, he preferred the fine appearance of the enemy to the memory of what God had sent him about. So Agag was most likely this giant. And by Saul preserving someone with a defiled genome, what he was doing on that, in that particular battle of the seed war is he was handing the enemy a victory because Saul chose to align with the seed of Satan. And then later, Saul confesses his fear of man. In 1 Samuel 15, 24, he says, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Well, this is precisely why Saul lost his kingship. You know, not only was he stripped of being king, but no descendant of Saul ever became king. So he lost the dynastic quality of his monarchy. And this just emphasizes when we fear man, we lose part of our inheritance. Uh, that There's so much there. Wow. So it, what I find interesting is when you were talking about when Saul had the fear of the man and then God gives him this judgment that he lost the kingdom. He could have had this established kingdom that could have continued on. And then it makes me think of his son, Jonathan. You know, we see Jonathan and and just to look ahead a little bit, Jonathan feared the Lord to the point that he's older than David, more experienced. When David's a young boy, Jonathan is out conquering the enemies, you know, him mm-hmm. and his shield bearer or just wiping them out and relying on God. It reminds me of Philippians 4, 6, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Jonathan says, I forget the verse, but something along the lines to a shield bearer, if God is with us, we're going to jump out here and kill 20 of, of these enemies. But but Jonathan hands his position as, as far as he knew, an, inherit, an inheritor of the kingdom, being Saul's son, to David in humility. And, and I, you see the fear of the Lord in Jonathan, but everything that Saul did, uh, loving um, the tallness, the stature of, you know, this, this wicked bloodline that he was to haram, to utterly destroy, to wipe them out. Clearly, this is a very um, important biblical insight into what it looks like to fear man versus fearing the Lord. And and I know you have to have some more gems to share on this. And this is, this is so exciting. It's so exciting. Yeah. I, I oh. love that you bring up Jonathan because um, I'm going to share in a few minutes about Michael, Saul's daughter. And, yeah. you know, Jonathan is an example of overcoming generational iniquity because he didn't walk in the fear of man, but we'll see that Michael walked in the fear of man, just like her father did. And so I appreciate that you brought up Jonathan because it gives us encouragement that no matter what's in our generational line, you know, the curses that exist there, that generational iniquity, we can cut that off. And, and so that it no longer flows forward in our generations And that's what Jonathan did. And precisely what you're pointing out is because he walked in the fear of the Lord. So I want to share about David because David's kingdom is this representation of the fear of the Lord. And, 
you know, there's two distinct instances where we clearly see that David walked in the fear of the Lord. The first one is when he faced Goliath. Yes. So Goliath, you know, Goliath used fear and intimidation to paralyze the armies of Israel for 40 days. You know, he is spewing these insults at Israel. And for 40 days, the armies of Saul, you know, go up to the battle line and they do absolutely nothing. But when David walked onto the scene, he shifted the atmosphere. And I love that because that's what we can do. We can shift the atmosphere no matter where we go. So, you know, David was sent on this errand by his father and he was to bring provisions to his brothers because his brothers were part of Saul's army. They were the ones on the battle line doing absolutely nothing. Well, here's the shepherd boy. You know, he was tried and tested on the fields while protecting the sheep. And he had spent his days developing this intimate relationship with the Lord. And because of that, the intimacy that he had, it gave him the confidence and the courage to fight the lion and the bear when they were attacking the sheep. So here David is now on the scene. He's hearing these insults that Goliath is spewing. And he's indignant. He's he's also perplexed at the lack of courage in Saul's fighting men. See, David had not given himself over to the fear of man. He had developed a relationship with the God of Israel. Now, one thing that's interesting, too, is that Goliath's name means splendor. And it comes from a Hebrew root word, galah, which means to expose to uncover, to remove, to be disclosed, and to depart. And I think that's interesting interesting because it really was a prophetic name that he carried because he was exposed. He was Hmm. uncovered, removed, and he was departed from the earth because of David's courage. And listen to what David said. This is one of my favorite passages. It's in 1 Samuel 17, verse 45 through 47. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. And I love that. That is such a declaration of confidence. And it's because, you know, the fear of the Lord enabled David to see a different reality than everyone else that was vexed by the fear of man. So the fear of the Lord allowed David to step into his inheritance as a great warrior, because later, you know, he'd be, he'd be known as slaying 10,000. So David's fear of the Lord allowed him to have this fearless attitude towards Goliath. You know, here's this eight foot, eight inch giant and David's, you know, a young teenager. He doesn't care who he's up against because he knew who he was in the Lord. His confidence came from the assurance that the ancient of days had his back. And I absolutely love that. Talk about slaying giants. So that's what we can do. When we walk in the fear of the Lord, it doesn't matter how intimidating the giant is that we're facing in our lives. We have the ancient of days on our back, you know, ready to um, be there and, and to conquer. 
And so another instance of David walking in the fear of the Lord is found in his worship. Now, David abandoned himself before the Lord in worship. And we read this in 2 Samuel 6, and I'll read verse 14 and then 20 through 23. It says, David wearing a linen ephod danced before the Lord with all his might. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more indignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So here we see that, you know, Michael is operating in the fear of man, just like her father did. She was more concerned about what other people would think than by obeying the Lord. And, you know, this led to the fact that she lost her inheritance. You know, she walked in this generational iniquity. She didn't break it like Jonathan did. So she walked under that fear of man and that caused her to remain barren the rest of her days. But here we see David, you know, walking in the fear of the Lord and it allowed him to lavish the Lord with this extravagant worship. And in return, the Lord enlarged his inheritance beyond what David could imagine. And we read this in 2 Samuel 7, verse 9 and 16. It says, I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So here we see, you know, these two kingdoms Saul gave into the fear of man and no one from his bloodline ever became king. But David walked in the fear of the Lord and the king of kings came from his bloodline. That is, uh, wow. So even if Saul had done right and kept the and, and established this kingdom, Jonathan still would have obeyed the Lord and it would have came to David. Like uh, just remembering because, oh my gosh. So David, his heart is after God. All mm. of this stuff is going on and he is emptying himself in worship. So, so God had him in mind, regardless of what everybody else was seeing. And, and I love the fact that you, you, you're bringing up where David goes and makes the declaration to Goliath. Yeah. That's me and my son's favorite Bible book to read together. And uh, he, he kind of reacts that uh, reenacts that scene between David and Goliath. Sometimes <laughs> I think he treats me like I'm Goliath and he runs over and hits me and I'm like, Oh no. Yeah. Um, and it's just so cool. And the confidence David picks up five smooth stones when he crosses over the brook. It, the fear of the Lord builds this, this confidence. It's, there's prophecy. What David says to Goliath happens to a T. So he's prophesying to him saying, listen, this is what is going to happen this day. Mm -hmm. He uh, And Goliath supposedly has four brothers, according to, I believe, 
some extra biblical documentation. I forget what the sources are, but I'm pretty sure. I think it's Goliath it's had, in the Bible as well. Is it in the Bible mm-hmm. as well? Mm-hmm. I should have pinpointed that um, for this discussion, but it's there for the audience. Uh, you guys investigate beyond just this conversation. There's so many gems that Dr. Laura Sanger is pulling out for us in the word of God. That's just uh, never ending. But the confidence that David had. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody else is scared. And and like you said, he's a young teenager and the lion and the bear, he builds this relationship with God where God has protected him against these smaller enemies and the confidence was building up. And I just love the story of David because when he worships, he empties himself. He is not worried yeah. about what other people are seeing around him. That's right. There is power and life in the word of God. I'm terribly excited for this, for this conversation. Just, just right now, I, uh, it, it's just, uh, I'm filled up. I feel full. <laughs> like I've eaten. I haven't eaten yet today, but here I am feeling like excited and full of energy and just, uh, th- this is good. Yeah. Is and I think, good. you know, one of the things for me in my life, um, I've walked for years and years under fear of man. And when the Lord broke me of that and I began understanding what does it mean to walk in the fear of the Lord, um, it, it just, there's nothing like it. it. It's like you, it's like you come into this realization of how magnificent God is and it doesn't matter what other people think of you. We only have an audience of one, you know, when we walk in the fear yes. of the Lord. And so one of the things I wanted to do is just lay out some characteristics of the fear of man versus the characteristics of the fear of the Lord so that each one of us can honestly take, you know, a look at where do we fall? Are we walking under fear of man or are we walking in the fear of the Lord? So characteristics of people who walk in the fear of man, generally, you know, they try and please others. They want to in enable others as well. And they typically will avoid conflict. Uh, You know, they give in to an intimidation because typically they're timid or they're codependent or insecure. And also oftentimes they're influenced by peer pressure. You know, they just want to do what everyone else is doing. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to be different. Sometimes even they can have social phobias. Um, You know, being around crowds of people is difficult for them because you know, they're fearful of what other people might be thinking or saying about them. Also, people who walk in the fear of man will act foolishly. They'll follow the advice of others rather than walking in obedience to the Lord. And typically they want to avoid accountability. They don't want to hear, you know, difficult things about their personality or what they need to change. And most often they're plagued by doubt, you know, self-doubt, doubt in the goodness of God. Um, you know, they, they struggle in walking in faith and doubt just takes over. Now, characteristics of the fear of the Lord, you know, these are people who desire to please God. Just like I was saying, you know, we have an audience of one and all we're after is pleasing the Lord. And it doesn't matter what other people think or say about us. In relationships, we're like iron sharpening iron. So we're not afraid to say the difficult thing in love. And we embrace healthy conflict because, you know, we're, we're confident in who we are in the Lord. 
We're able to face intimidation head on. We're bold. We're able to set those healthy boundaries because once again, we're secure in our identity of who God has made us to be. Then biblical truths shape our decisions, not what everyone else is doing, not what peer pressure or the world suggests, but biblical truths will shape our decisions. And we're okay going against the flow. We're okay standing out and being different because we know that we're walking in obedience. And that allows us to be comfortable, you know, no matter what the size of the crowd, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter what we look like. It doesn't matter what people are saying about us. And oftentimes we walk in wisdom because we're following the voice of the Lord and not the voice of others. And we welcome accountability because we we recognize that when people show us things about ourselves that we ourselves can't see that are, you know, weaknesses or areas of sin, then it allows us to deal with it and we become better. It's like we move from glory to glory. And so people who walk in the fear of the Lord welcome accountability and then we walk by faith and not by sight. So those are some of the differences and characteristics. And, you know, as we think about how God gave David promises of this incredible inheritance, you know, when he walked in the fear of the Lord, well, we see through scripture that the Lord gives us promises for those who walk in the fear of the Lord. And I've actually, I've put together 22 different promises from scripture of those who walk in the fear of the Lord. And I can, I can send that to you. I don't know if it's possible to include it in your show notes or what, but um, it's so powerful to read these promises and I'll just read three of them. Um, So one promise is generational blessing. And this comes from Psalm 112 verses one through two. It says, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. And then we also have promises of deliverance, which we see from Psalm 34, 7. It says the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. And then we're promised wisdom. Proverbs 9, 10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so, you know, what we see is when we walk in the fear of the Lord, when we live our lives in that way, it changes everything about our perspective. And I want to read to you a quote. It's um, from John Parsons. He has a, a website called Hebrew for Christians. And he writes, when we really see life as it truly is, we will be filled with wonder and awe over the glory of it all. Every bush will be aflame with the presence of God. And the ground we walk upon shall suddenly be perceived as holy. Nothing will seem small, trivial, or insignificant. In this sense, fear and trembling before the Lord is a description of the inner awareness of the sanctity of life itself. And I love that. And, you know, those who walk in the fear of the Lord, we take seriously his commandments. And one of those commandments is to rest. Wow. Wow. That, that is a powerful quote. And what a difference between fear of man and the fear of the Lord. And and this is something I find interesting about um, repenting, to have a change of mind. So there's characteristics I've noticed like in, in my younger life that I would, I was sequacious, just going with the flow, whatever the culture was. I didn't really know where I belonged in life or what I was going to do, but uh, you know, a series of events, uh, my near death encounter and, 
and some other things that happened in my personal life, it opened my eyes to the point of, God, I, I've never even inquired of you. I don't know who you are. I don't know how you work. And, and it came from this place of wanting to seek and understand, you know, really, really, I was worried about what actually is going to happen when I die. And it's funny that you say, um, you know, as we follow God, we don't care what other people think because kind of over the next couple of years, it was long and drawn out, but I just didn't care if I looked foolish or if people would say, oh, why are you not doing what you used to do? You used to be hip and cool or whatever. And now you're, you know, carrying around a Bible, reading a Bible, making this stance where you're going to dive into these, these strange things within Christianity to try to get a deeper understanding. And, and for me, having this change of mind and changing my mind and learning as I go to take captive my thoughts in obedience to Christ, really, I personally have seen slowly, not, not in completion by far, I still got a long way to go, but converting some of these fear of man things, uh, they've just been dissipating as time goes on. And I find myself just more infatuated with what God's truth is about us. So please do send me those 22 promise quotes from that, that you have listed out there, they yeah. will be included in the show notes. Okay. Now, okay. this is so important, this place of rest that you're talking about, because those who are walking with God and, and um, this wrestling match has been taking place with where um, their calling is and identifying, you know, <laughs> generational iniquities. And, and we've covered this in previous episodes. So if anybody's listening for the first time, we did breaking strongholds, iniquities. We did the episode on marriage. Your, your first time here, we discussed mm -hmm. your book, Spiritual Mapping and the Nephilim Agenda. And um, real quick, I just want to throw this out there. Dr. Laura has released the roots of the Federal Reserve um, on audio. So it's, it's available on Audible. And that's actually, uh, I just went through it again recently, which is so helpful being that uh, I battle with dyslexia. So sitting and reading sometimes is difficult. So for anybody out there, go and support, leave her a review on Audible um, or order the physical copy on Amazon or anywhere else it's available. But one of, one of the really cool things is that I'm hearing from listeners and just friends and family who have been following this podcast and many other great podcasts that are taking a stance. They're not going with the culture. They're not bowing down to just all of these crooked and perverse systems that seem to be bubbling up and over into our society. They are taking a stand and they are slowing down. So this place of rest is so important and timely also, because a lot of us feel like I just need to spend some time with the Lord. I need to just rest in him yeah, yeah. But how do we do that without letting our guard down? How do we fight from that place? Uh, please help me understand in the audience. This is good. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think it's so important, like you're saying, to learn how to rest because we are in the midst of an intense spiritual battle and we can get weary and worn out unless we learn how to rest. And you know, Sabbath is this gift that the creator gave us. It prolongs our life. You know, it gives us sanity and wholeness. And even in relationships, you know, it, it enriches our relationships and increases our fruitfulness. But Sabbath is not what we do once all our tasks are completed. Rest is what we do in the middle of all our tasks. 
and we rest without excuse and we rest without guilt because God taught us how to rest from the very beginning. And this is Genesis two, verse two through three. It says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So in that passage, when you look at the Hebrew word for rest is Shavath, and that's the root word for Sabbath. Well, it means to cease, desist, rest, to put an end to, to exterminate, to destroy, and to remove. And all of those describe voluntary rest. But it also means to cause to cease, to cause to desist, to cause to fail, to make one rest and be still, and to take away. And that describes involuntary rest. And I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But when you when you think about this definition of rest, you know, how can the same word for rest mean to destroy and exterminate? You know, how does that fit in with Sabbath? Well, when we hmm. rest, we are actually also warring. We're destroying the works of the enemy. We're putting an end to striving, stress, exhaustion, worry, self-sufficiency, and pride. And God established, you know, the principle of rest as a commandment. And Sabbath is the fourth commandment. And this comes from Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11. It says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, which that word for holy means to sanctify, to consecrate, to set it apart as sacred. Goes on to say, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in this passage, what we see is that, you know, this principle of Sabbath is not just for the children of God, it's for all of humanity. So it's for slave and free, it's for Jew and Gentile. But not only that, it's for all of creation. Animals need to rest. Land needs to rest. Exodus 23, 10 through 11 says, for six years, you were to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. See, the Lord took very seriously his commandment for the land to have rest. And if his children neglected it, he would drive them into captivity. Leviticus 26, 33 through 35 says, I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths all the time that it lies desolate. The land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. Well, what's interesting to realize is the whole reason Um, Israel was driven into Babylonian captivity was because they failed to give the land their rest. Second Chronicles 36, 20 through 21 says he carried into exile to Babylon, the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. 
The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in the fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. So here we see, you know, the creator, he gives us the instruction manual for for all of creation and it says to rest. Well, if we don't follow this instruction, what happens is creation gradually falls apart. See, rest is so vital. That's why he established it as a commandment. And I want to read the Ten Commandments because I'll point out something interesting about rest here. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. So in the first three commandments, what we see is that we're instructed on how to have a healthy relationship with God. And then in the last six commandments, we see how to have a healthy relationship with people. And the fourth commandment is that transition commandment. And that shows us how important rest is. So when we enter into rest, not only are we drawing deeper in relationship with the Lord, but it also provides us with the refreshment that we need to love others. Wow. And and I'm thinking as you were speaking, the scripture says, be holy as I am holy. And th- there's like you say, this refreshment and this rest is so necessary. And unfortunately, the the way the general consensus is today is go, 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 right? Right. And people will argue, oh, the Sabbath is actually Saturday or no, it's Sunday. No, Sunday comes from the sun god worship, right? And there's all these confusing things. But the importance in the Big Ten you just read to us, keeping the Sabbath day, keep it's it's holy, it's separate, it's set apart, and it is designed for our good. And we know that there's consequences for not keeping that according to the verses you shared with us and and what God is saying. And that's so important. You know, when David is talking about uh, in the Psalms, God, you're my strong tower. I run to you in time of need and time Mm -hmm. of help. Mm -hmm. Well, God is holy. And if he's saying for us to be holy, like he is holy, this is just a connection I'm, I'm just making as I'm thinking. I'm listening to you and like scriptures are coming to mind, like reiterating what you're saying just is beautiful. But when we run to God, we need to have the kind of fear of the Lord where we're in acknowledgement and obedience to what his law is for us as his people. We should be holy as he is holy, set apart, not following the way that the world is, not just going with the flow and accepting whatever anybody says, and it's going to look bold. Sometimes we're going to be a little loud or aggressive, but it's going to come from a place of like, like a holy anger or righteousness. Mm -hmm. And all of this is so important. Um, (laughs) The only, I'm not a big birthday guy. Like I don't celebrate too much or make a big deal out of my birthday, but the only reason I would want more in one year is to have a birthday Bible study with you, Laura, because this is, (laughs) this is epic. This is so good. And this is what's accessible to all of us. If we just come in humility, mm-hmm. a broken and contrite spirit, God does not reject. You You reminded us David emptied himself as he worshiped the Lord. We can do this on a yeah. daily basis, you guys, a weekly yeah. basis, a monthly basis. Get plugged in with another strong believer for all of you listeners out there and get excited about the word of God. And 
Yeah. Um, this you know, is, I think about too, like what we were saying earlier, how, you know, when you enter into rest, we actually can war from that place. And for me, when I discovered that reality, it transformed the spiritual warfare that I'm engaged in. And so, you know, like I mentioned earlier, when we rest, we're destroying the works of the enemy. You know, we're putting to death striving and stress and exhaustion and all those things. And, you know, when we honor the Sabbath, it requires us to trust the Lord instead of our own efforts, right? To take care of our own needs. And I love Matthew 6, 8, you know, it talks about how the Lord, it says, for your father knows what you need even before you ask him. And it's so true. You know, he sees the big picture. He knows when we need to rest and he'll lead us into rest. But so often we don't follow him because, you know, we want to maintain control over our own schedule. But entering into rest means that we learn how to daily surrender to him. And I remember years ago, I began praying this prayer and I just said, Lord, order my day. And it's amazing how this daily simple surrender has completely changed my perspective. (laughs) So I used to get like really irritated um, with people when they would cancel on me. But now when that happens, it's like it doesn't bother me at all because I realize that God is reordering my day. And I would much have I would much rather have what the Holy Spirit has in mind for my day than what my calendar says. And there's literally days when everyone will cancel and you're like, what is going on? And then I realize, (laughs) oh, I must need to rest. The Lord is like completely clearing my schedule. And I love days like that. And, you know, when we think about Psalm 23, it talks about how the Lord lets us rest in green meadows and he leads us beside these peaceful streams. And he, he makes sure that he guides us on these right paths So in other words, he's inviting us to follow him into rest. But again, we get to choose how we enter into rest, whether voluntarily or involuntarily. Now, voluntarily entering into rest means that we choose to cease, to stop, to submit our time to the Lord, because we recognize that he's our provider, not the works of our hands. Involuntarily entering into rest means that something or someone causes us to cease. You know, we may work ourselves so hard that we get injured or, you know, we get sick or worse yet, we um, trigger a disease in our body. Sometimes we get laid off from a job. You know, no matter what the circumstances are, there's some circumstances that force us to rest but we still have a choice. Are we going to enter into rest? Are we going to get ourselves so worked up emotionally that we're angry or we're worried about our circumstances? Now for me in my life, I've experienced both and I'm sure you have as well and (laughs) your listeners have as well. Well, I would much rather choose rest than be forced to rest because most of the time when I involuntarily enter into rest, you know, it's yeah. precipitated by a sickness or by an injury. Yeah. And I remember um, the year between my undergraduate and my graduate school studies, um, I was working full time at the VA Medical Center in La Jolla, California. And I was in the Department of Psychiatry and I was doing research on schizophrenia. And in addition to that full time job, I also was an assistant coach for the UC San Diego crew team, the rowing team, because I was on the crew team um, as a student. 
And then that same year, I was involved in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on campus, and I was dating Tom, you know, the man I would marry. And so my life was just full to capacity. And I had this really fast paced life. Well, I went to this um, retreat with InterVarsity. And during one of the breaks, we were playing Ultimate Frisbee. And I tore the meniscus in my knee and it turned out I needed surgery, but I had such horrible medical insurance that it took them a month to approve the surgery. So I was on crutches and a knee immobilizer for an entire month before I had surgery. And so my fast paced life came to a screeching halt, you know, and I, I really was at this slow crawl and it seems like as I look back over my life, it seems like the Lord just keeps bringing me these lessons of how to learn how to rest. And, you know, some people it comes easier. And I would say for me, I feel like I'm getting better at it, but I always have this internal struggle because one of my strengths on the strength finder test is achiever. And I am never bored. I I always have like things I'm researching or projects I'm working on. And my husband, he teases me. He's like, do you have like this running list in your head of to do's? (laughs) And it's totally true. I do. And I used to go, 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 go until I would collapse. And of course, that's not healthy. And, you know, it seems like I was always striving for something. And I really, I learned how to strive when I was a teenager, a young teenager, I was, as a child, I was a competitive figure skater from age of six to age 13. And I'm a natural athlete. And so I've been involved in all sorts of sports and they just come easy to me. Well, figure skating, I was really good at. And so I would um, finish first, second or third in every competition, except for the very last two competitions. My last competition, I remember so clearly, like I was super well-trained. I could do my performance flawlessly. But when it came time for the competition, I let my nerves get the best of me. And I fell on one of my jumps in my program. And I remember skating off the ice because I was super disappointed in myself. I skated with my head hung low. Well, that is the number one thing you don't do as a figure skater because it's the last image that the judges see of you is you being disappointed in your program. And so that will remind them, oh, I need to mark her down. (laughs) So I skated off the ice with my head down and my coach yelled at me in front of hundreds of people. And then I turned to my parents for support and they gave me the silent treatment. And so I learned in that moment, if I fail, I'm going to be rejected. And so I made this unconscious pact with myself that I'm never going to fail. And so I was an incredibly driven individual. Well, when I made that unconscious pact, it opened the door to a spirit of fear of failure. And I Mm. was plagued by that until graduate school when I got set free and delivered from it. And I remember when I was telling my mom um, after I got set free from that spirit of fear of failure, I was telling her the story and And she asked for my forgiveness for how they handled that moment. Um, She never felt good about that. And so it was this beautiful time of reconciliation and healing. But because of that, I had developed this striving mentality. And so the Lord had to teach me through involuntary rest, the difference between striving and rest. 
And again, even when we're forced with involuntary rest, we still have to choose to rest. You know, at first when I injured my knee, I was angry. I, you know, I was frustrated. I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do. But then finally I let go of that and I just embraced the situation, embraced the the rest. And I remember what happened, like things started becoming more beautiful in my surroundings. So, you know, I, I had this research job and it required me to go to some of the research libraries on campus. And UC San Diego is massive. You know, on a good day, it would take me 40 minutes to get from one end of campus to another. So now picture me on crutches with this knee immobilizer having to get to these research libraries. And I had to walk so slow. Like I began noticing flowers and bushes and trees and like, oh, look, there's a butterfly. And (laughs) oh, that's a beautiful bird. (laughs) You know, nature just came alive to me. And prior to that, I would just whiz on past it, not even taking in my surroundings. And so the Lord taught me in that, time of my life that when I rest, when I enter into rest, I see these truths and and aspects of the beautiful nature of God and what he's created come to life. And I also realized, you know, when we walk in the fear of the Lord, it leads us to rest. And that's what it says in Proverbs 19, 23. It says, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. So I believe, you know, we position ourselves to see his wonders when we enter into rest. Now, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, choosing to rest breaks the back of striving. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, it says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, there's actually, there's a yoke of striving and there's a Mm -hmm. yoke of rest. And Jesus offers himself as our place of rest. And once I recognize that, once I recognize that there's a place of rest, it's the bosom of Jesus. That's when I realized, oh my gosh, I can actually war from a place of rest And when the Lord called me to the front lines of the spiritual battle we're in, you know, a couple of years ago, he told me this. He said, the enemy can't find you when you're hidden in my presence. And when he told me that, I was like, oh my gosh, that is so good. And so I'm learning how to live my life hidden in the presence of the Lord because the enemy can't find me there. The presence of the Lord is filled with this glory. You think of the brightest light ever. It's blinding and the enemy can't even see me because I'm hidden in the presence of the Lord. And then he gave me this vision last year of me like this baby bird and I'm underneath the wings of the father and I've got my mouth open and he's feeding me and he's nourishing me. And I'm just like super excited to, to eat all the nourishment that he has for me. And then when he sends me out on assignment, I become like that peregrine falcon and I dive at at incredible speeds and I hit my mark. And then I come back to the father underneath his wings like that baby bird again. And I absolutely love that image because that shows me, that teaches me how to live my life Mm 
in rest under the shadow of his wings in the bosom of Jesus. Now, I'm going to share one other thing. Well, a couple other things too. Um, you know, I one of my favorite forms of exercise now that I'm getting older is paddle boarding. I had to let go of a lot of other <laughs> of the sports I used to play <laughs> because they were um, contact sports. But um, paddle boarding, I absolutely love. And we live near a lake. And the Lord has taught me so much on my paddleboard. And one of the things that I want to share is um, he taught me, you know, through being out on the lake when it's really windy. Now, when it's windy, everything is harder, as you can imagine. You know, it's harder to paddle. It's harder to go anywhere. It's harder to stay on the board itself. And to me, that's an image of striving, you know, when we strive, we make everything more difficult and it's hard to accomplish anything because we're wearing this heavy yoke of striving. And when we're, you know, struggling to achieve that thing that we've set out to do and, and we're just, we're not able to achieve it. What happens is because of that bondage of striving, I used to have this phrase, what, well, just buckle down and try harder. Well, that comes out of striving. And so when yeah, you try and yeah. do that, that's when stress and fear, anxiety, and irritability creep in. But when we enter into rest, it's like the moment on the board when I get to turn around and go with the wind. And I, it's this sense of relief. And everything is easy. In fact, I could literally just stand on the board and not paddle and just steer a little bit and I'll get to where I want to go because the wind is pushing me. But then when I decide to paddle with the wind... You know, I travel farther and faster, but with way less effort. And to me, that's the yoke of rest. Now, another thing the Lord taught me when I was out on the paddleboard in the wind. Now, again, when it's windy, it's not peaceful, right? There's these waves and your board is like slapping up and down against the waves, the choppiness of the lake. And so I'm out there one day and <laughs> Salt Lake is um, unique in its weather. Um, we tease people who come into town and we say, you know, if you don't like the weather, s- stick around in five minutes, it will be different. And so <laughs> I don't intentionally go out in the wind, but I'll go out on the lake and it's fine. It's great. It's a wonderful mm-hmm. day. And then in five minutes, <laughs> like this heavy wind comes in or worse yet, thunderstorms. And so um, it was one of those days and I'm like, really, Lord, this wind gust. So I'm paddling into the wind and it's, it's hard and it's strong. And, but all of a sudden I get lost in the presence of the Lord. And it's like, my body is still struggling to paddle into the wind, but my soul and spirit are with the King of Kings. Like I am just having the time of my life in his presence And I could care less about my circumstances. And the Lord spoke to me in that moment. And he said, no matter what the circumstances are, you can always find rest. And I realized that, you know, it made me think about Jesus when he was in the boat sleeping and there's these wind and waves and that, you know, the disciples are freaking out because they think they're going to die. And there's Jesus. He's resting. He's sleeping. The disciples are freaking and he's resting. (laughs) Well, I realized I want to live my life in rest. I don't want to, I want to freak out. 
And, you know, back to David, I I love David. My, my youngest son's middle name is David because David's my favorite king. My wow. other son's middle name is Josiah because that's my second favorite king. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so David, you know, he provides us with a good example of how we find rest in the midst of difficult circumstances. And for David, what that looked like is that was, um, you know, him surrendering to the sovereignty of the Lord. And I love Psalm 62 because it gives us a window into how David lived this out. And this is verse one through five. It says, my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault a man? Would all of you throw him down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? They fully intend to topple him from his lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. So here we see in this passage, you know, David is surrounded by his enemies that are bent on his destruction. And so in verse one, he is declaring, my soul finds rest in God alone. But by verse five, he is commanding his soul to find rest in God alone. And I think about, you know, I can only imagine the thoughts of fear and despair and worry that crept into David's mind between verse one and verse five. Yeah. And, you know, David had to know God as his rock, his fortress, and his salvation in order to endure his hard circumstances. So what David was doing here is he was taking every thought captive and he was telling his soul, line up and only find rest in God alone. And that's what we have to do. You know, sometimes we have to just tell our soul, Find rest in God alone. We have to remind ourselves, just like you spoke in the beginning, that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And so I just, you know, I want to encourage people that we anchor our lives in Psalm 4210, which says, be still and know that I'm God. Psalms 116.7. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with mm. thee. Mm. And then I just want to read Exodus thirty three fourteen quick. And he said, my presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. Hebrews 4, 9, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. So for everybody listening, the Psalms 116, if you need to return unto rest, which I highly recommend, mm-hmm. we, we know that God's ways are good and his ways are higher than our ways. He, he is so separate and set apart and above and beyond what we can comprehend. So the world may be trying to drive us and harness us to the plow and to make us produce and the pressure may be on, but it makes me think of faith. If we have faith, how could you express your faith, the substance of something hoped for, the evidence of the unseen, if everything is going perfect in life? Faith is tested when, in my opinion, when things aren't going perfect. When we hear what God is saying, we slow down, we rest and marinate in his word, and then we, we come out going, okay, God, 
it looks like this on the outside. People are going to mock me. They may laugh at me. They may question and try to advise me. But we know that the fear of man would take the advice of those around them. But to he who hides the word of God in his heart, that he may not sin against God, to he who is seeking after the Lord with the might and the strength that is given, that's where we're going to find rest when we align our hearts as we grow and we learn to repent and change our minds, to, to change the way that we're viewing and thinking about things. Because faith comes from hearing the word. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of scripture quoted from, from Laura on this episode and, and gems and nuggets as we went through uh, Samuel talking about the difference of Saul's kingdom versus David's kingdom. Let's follow after the Lord in a closer, a deeper, and a more secret way than we ever have before by entering into a place of rest. And to the world, that's going to sound crazy. What do you mean you're, you're warring from a place of rest? What do you mean you're being restored in rest? They'll say things like the early bird gets the worm and you need a second job because inflation is so bad right now. How can you afford anything? But we trust Mm -hmm. that God will make a way. Even if the monetary system falls, God will make a way. It is in the presence of difficult things that happen that our faith is tested. Our faith is not for the sunny, shiny days where the breeze is not blowing too strong and and everything is, is overflowing in goodness. Our faith can be tested on, will we trust God to enter into a place of rest? Will we allot a time and say, God, you are holy. You're calling me to be holy. I want to enter into a place of rest. I want to go against the grain. I want to make a stand and believe your word and your power and the revelation, the rhema, this coming alive to me, jumping off the pages is greater than anything that the world is waving around out there. So I'm encouraged. I am I am so encouraged. And I love when you were sharing, you know, some of your obstacles as you were, you know, skating and, and, and doing these things as you were younger, because it really did remind me again of God works all things together. He's yeah. a good God. He's a good father. He's patient with us, right? It's like right. we're learning these little incremental things and then <laughs> we we reflect later in life and like we're looking back and going like god you you were there for me in, at this season at this time in the moment it it might not have felt like it but right right the way that he works these big things and small things together is definitely worth the reflection in my opinion and I, and i just you always bring this refreshment to the episode you've really just um you're doing what god is calling you to do and by sharing your testimony and and helping us to find these nuggets in the word. And th- this is also a gentle warning to the listeners. We need to have a holy reverence for what God is saying yes, and, yes. and just having that rest in him yeah. because he's the power move. He is the one who is going to make a way where there seems like there is no way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we're at uh, as a society, as a whole, as a country right now. Obviously, we know the answer is not in voting the right person in. We know the answer is going to be seeking the face of the Lord, turning from the wicked things that we have committed, changing the way we perceive life, but being transformed and renewed slowly and surely by the guidance of his spirit and his word. So edification at its best. (laughs) Yes. It's it's always an honor to be with you. And uh, just. 
I'm in the zone. You got me on cloud nine once again. Every time you come <laughs> on, I'm like, okay. So, <laughs> well, good. Oh, I'm hoping geez. it was a good birthday gift for you. And it's always so wonderful to be together. Absolutely. And I know most people are going to know at this point, but please plug in where new listeners can find you, reiterate the information for um, those who keep coming back for more here on the Mustard Seed. Where can people find you? Anything that you're working on? Uh, anything in the near future? Anything you'd like to share with us? Yes. Well, thank you. So the best place to reach me is uh, to start by going onto my website, which is no longer enslaved.com. And then from there, um, I have monthly articles uh, that I write. And if folks are interested in receiving those, I don't inundate your inbox. I just do one article a month. Uh, people can sign up. It's free to subscribe. And then uh, you can order my book from my website or off of Amazon. And um, as you mentioned, Rod, I do have it now in Audible. I'm super excited about that because like yourself, I've had so many people reach out. I'm grateful that I, I narrated the book and put it in audio format because either they're too busy to read or, um, you know, dyslexic, like you said. And so I'm super excited that it's available now, both in Kindle form and paperback and audible. And it's currently being translated into Spanish. That's probably one of the things I'm most excited about. And I've got some folks from um, some uh, pastors from Florida that have just sown seeds into the translation and, um, it's, I think we're on chapter 21 has been translated, then it needs to be proofread and then sent to my publisher and, you know, she'll put it all together. Uh, so it's probably still a few months out, but I'm so excited for that because it will really open up these concepts of the Nephilim and the Nephilim agenda to the Spanish speaking communities. So I'm super excited about that. And then I'm also, um, on uh, YouTube, I have a YouTube and Rumble channel called No Longer Enslaved, and I have a seven-part series on spiritual mapping and a 10-part series on the impact of the Nephilim agenda today for those that are interested in digging a little deeper in those subjects. And then if people want to follow me, I'm on Instagram under Laura Sanger 444 Hertz and then also Telegram Laura Sanger 444 Hertz. So that's what I'm got my hands uh, in right now. And I'm, I'm doing a spiritual mapping project currently um, in the Salt Lake Valley, which I'm excited about. We're going to go do some reconnaissance tomorrow, Yeah, uh, which is awesome. Um, but so yeah, cool. so that's what I'm involved in. Yeah. And, and I couldn't recommend your book any, it's just I'm blown away. And it is so helpful that you narrated it yourself too. That's probably yeah. not easy. So like it wasn't, it was so hard. <laughs> but it's so rewarding to just hear you go through it and not somebody oh. else also. And it just it really um it's it's been so helpful for me. I'm at a factory and um boots on the ground 40 plus hours a week in a manufacturing facility. Mm. We, we make some interesting parts where we're busy right now because uh, some of the things that we are tailored to are for the military and the aerospace industry. So mm. that keeps us pretty busy. Oh, uh, thank God. And I am able to put one earbud in and throughout the day, nice. <laughs> uh, multiple times I've listened to um, 
the Bible in 24 hours by Dr. Chuck Missler. But, mm. <laughs> and so now having to be able to utilize some of that time to listen to your book, which is narrated by you on audible, it's, it's been a game changer. It just really helped me to dive into a space uh, where I'm at work and I normally wouldn't have that time to reflect or dig deeper. I find yeah. myself pausing. I'll write, I'll run over to the, my desk and write down things on a sticky <laughs> Okay, we got to look into that, and um, it, just just a glimmer into uh, something I had texted you the other week. It was just this question about the frequency of gold, and it, it's so interesting. I was listening to your interview with Blurry Creatures at the time, and I was in and out of of still going through your book on Audible, and the, just little gems like that. I remember years ago when the linen thing came up, where it was that yeah. you know why is everybody who's holy or you know, a prophet wearing white linen in the Bible, right? And it's just these little nuggets are what keep us on this trail where we're investigating the word of God. It's becoming alive to us and keeping us um, just interested on a day-to-day basis. So it's it's a game changer um, that you did that on Audible. And for the Spanish community, I'm excited. Be- Sam Diaz was on. He speaks Spanish. He lives local to me in Reading, PA, which is predominantly a Spanish city. Mm. We don't get a ton of downloads from Reading, I think, because it's uh, they speak fluent Spanish there and, and not as much English. But it, it's awesome to be able to um, represent that to large populations close by to me when that Spanish narration is done. I think that that's huge loving uh, our neighbors as we love ourselves is going to stretch the boundaries beyond just who we talk to and meet up with and like who's in our inside circle is going to be sharing this information and, and really taking an interest in the people around us, whether they're from a different culture, they speak a different language or not. And that's one of the big things that got me excited when I heard you were developing the, the, the Spanish version of this on audible. So well, um, it, it'll be it. actually, it'll be in print. The Spanish version it'll be will in be print. in print. Okay. Yes. It'll be in print. Oh, well, that is, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. And hopefully someday uh, it'll grow to even more languages. Yeah, that'd be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, another birthday episode down. And thank you for taking the time to just invest into my life. I know over the years, just you encouraging me and all of your work and the feedback of how it's helping other people grow. You know, the Bible says, let somebody else, you know, honor you and and, and, and praise what you're doing, right? That we don't do that for ourselves. So it's, I'm just (laughs) uh, happy to be in a position where I know Uh you and like, I get encouragement from you. We get to have conversations and yeah. Um, sometimes I'm like, I get to text Dr. Laura a question. Like, this is crazy, <laughs> you know? And it's just a blessing. So well, thank you good. for being here on the Millennium Mustard Seed podcast. Any uh, last words you. before we close out? Oh, just, you know, to encourage people um, to tune out all the voices that are going on in the world and just tune into the voice of the Lord. And that's it. That is the episode. Thank you for being here. I know this was edifying. I know this is encouraging. I want you guys to share this episode with your friends, family members, your neighbors. Share it with your pastor. And don't forget, resting in the Lord is key. Coming to you from Southeastern Pennsylvania. Goodbye.
at yonder in the distance with his garment white as snow with a voice that sounds like thunder walking on the street of appears is like lightning setting high upon his throne has ten thousand times ten thousand say we finally made it home glory city there's a river flowing from God's holy throne where the tree of life is blooming where the head has not been pulled no more tears in that bright city Death will have to flee away. No more sickness, no more heartaches in that land. A perfect day. Glory, glory.